0: Well, good morning. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Glad you're with us. If you uh, have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Joshua, or if you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it's on page 181. About three weeks ago, we've, we, we said that uh, Israel is a loved people in possession of something powerful, which is the one true God, attempting to believe the unbelievable. And this book of Joshua uh, is is about them coming in and taking this land that God has promised to them. And and what we said, if you remember what the unbelievable is, is not so much that they will go in and conquer armies that are bigger than theirs, but that they'll remember that it's not because of their righteousness that God is doing this, for they are a stubborn people, he tells them. Uh, and so what, what, what really is the unbelievable is that grace is real, uh, that God would, would love a people, would love us uh, for no merit in and of ourselves, but that he loves us. And we see that in a unique way in this story. And so t- this morning, uh, before we read here in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, we, we come to the topic of the conquest, which is the, the, the topic of the destruction of a people group. And so we're going to do our best to talk about that, but that's where we are this morning because that's where the rest of the book takes us. And so there'll be a few things that we want to hold together as we uh, think about this, as we wrestle with it, um, and hopefully as we talk further about it, maybe in small groups or around coffee. But um, that is where we are. Let us give uh, our attention then to the reading of God's word found in the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this word that you have to us here in the book of Joshua. And I pray now that as we look at it, um, that you would graciously give us your spirit and open our eyes and our ears that we may see things and hear things otherwise we could not and that we would leave here uh, changed people for your glory we ask this all in jesus name amen i want you to imagine for a second that i have just come back from vacation and we're maybe out there in the lobby and you've asked me hey how was your vacation what did you do and i begin to just tell you uh, about my vacation and what it was that I did. And, and as I and as I do that, I begin telling you this. Um, well, one, it was dark. <laughs> it's a great way to talk about a vacation, right? I could barely see. Occasionally, people in uniform were coming alongside of us and walking around. Uh, but we just kept our heads down. We were in this line with other people. And we just kept moving forward. At one point, they put us in cars with bars that came down. Um, and then after that, we we, we it seemed like we went 100 miles an hour. Um, it was complete, completely dark. I didn't know where we were going, what we, what we were doing. Uh, at times there were there were lights flashing. Um, it was very very scary. Um, anyways, I had no idea if I was going to make it out alive. If this was this is what you heard, and then I said, um, yeah, uh, I think it was. I think the ride was called Space Mountain. Um. <laughs> And you would look at me and you'd say, whoa, 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 you went to Disney World. And I said, oh, yeah, did I not did I mention that? Sorry, that's an important part, right? If I told you that, right, uh, you, before hearing that, you might have been really concerned. You should have been really concerned about where I'm choosing to go on vacation, <laughs> where, I'm, where I'm finding myself. But once you knew where I was, right, it didn't, didn't change what I said, right, it didn't make what I said untrue, but it helped, Right, tremendously. It helped. Why? Because context is king. This morning, we are going to talk about the conquest or the destruction of the Canaanites, which is what it is, uh, what we see in Joshua in the Bible. Um, and, and let me first say this. One, I, I, don't, I don't even pretend, and I don't want you to think that I, that I do uh, uh, pretend to know that I, that I understand everything about this topic. I don't. I have a lot of questions about it um so you know I, I don't fully understand it i have questions i assume you do too and i do not presume to think that what we will talk about this morning are going to alleviate all that concern and question it's going to wrap it up in a nice pretty box put a bow on top of it and we don't have to worry about this at all that's not what this morning is but what i do think we can do is we can place the conquest in its proper context Which is the story of scripture culminating in the cross of Jesus Christ. To do so doesn't make the conquest untrue, but it helps. It helps a lot. For to remove or to isolate the conquest from the cross of Jesus will make God, to most of us, as it should, a monster. And the Christian story confusing at best, but to hold the two together, keeping the conquest, keeping the conquest in its rightful context doesn't make it untrue, but it helps my perspective. As I try to understand what God is doing, that's really my aim for us, because what is true of God is that he is merciful and that he is good. That is what is true of him. He is merciful and he is good. And he is merciful and good to an unfaithful people, to unfaithful sinners like you and like me. And what the cross tells me is not just that he is merciful and sinner, not that he is merciful and good, um, but that I can trust that. Even as I look into Scripture and I see places such as this that I have questions about or that I don't fully understand, because at the end of the day, the cross is what gets and gives us the final word. That God loves you and He wants you to experience His forgiveness. Okay? So you'll see there printed in your outline because God is merciful and good, we can fear His judgment. We can trust his judgment and we can escape his judgment are the three ways that I want to sort of organize our time together around this topic. So let's take those in that order. We can fear his judgment. Well, when we start out here in verses 30, 13 and 15, when, you know, as, as you just heard them read or maybe as you've read them before, they come to us. And, and maybe it's just a very confusing dialogue here. Um, confusing topic, Joshua has gone out to to spy Jericho is why he 's out there um, he 's been there before. Uh, if you remember I reading back in uh, numbers fourteen but he 's been there before he he kind of knows the lay of the land and he 's getting ready to go in and, and and to do what God has promised him and as he 's out there spying the land, he comes across this this soldier with a drawn sword and what is probably a reaction that any of us would have is just Trying to identify who this person is. You know, are you, are you for us or against us? Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you, uh, are you, are you with Jericho? Like, what, what am I doing? What, what's going on here? And the response we get is what is confusing. No. Well, let's start over again here. Are you for us or are you against us? No. What do you do with that? And then, to follow it up, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Remove your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. Uh, Just a note, this is yet another parallel uh, between Joshua and Moses, where Moses met with the Lord uh, in the burning bush. And if you remember, remove your sandals, Moses, because you're on, on, on holy ground. But like Joshua, perhaps we are meant to be confused here because what's happening is God is showing or reminding us what it means for Him to be the creator God that He has said that He is. And for everyone else, including all of us in this room, to be the creation. What it means for God to even be holy, which is another topic in and of itself, to be separate and to be other, some of the things we've touched on over the past few weeks, and for us to be sinful, to be disobedient. To this standard of holiness. And in that relationship, friends, in that relationship described there, God does not take sides. There is only God, and there is everyone else. Israel and Canaan included, and maintaining that creator-creation distinction is what produces in us the healthy fear or respect, you might say, and even humility towards God that all of us need to start with this morning as we talk about judgment. When I say that we can fear his judgment, that is not so much a fear of being judged, although that might be true for some of us in this room. But a fear or respect that acknowledges if God, if God exists, then judgment is 100% his right um, and no one else's because he is the creator of all things. He alone has that authority. Because God is saying to Joshua and, and perhaps to us this morning, regardless of how close you feel to me, you are never to lose that perspective. You're never to lose the creator, creation perspective. I don't take sides. There's only holy and there's unholy. There's only clean and there's unclean. God is saying to Joshua essentially, yes, I I have promised and I do promise to be with you and I will be with you. I love you. And I have demonstrated that to you over and over again, but you must never get too comfortable with me. You must never forget who I am and who you are. And that is not to say that, that, that God is unpredictable in the sense of, you know, to, to characterize him maybe as a, a, drunk, a drunken, abusive father. That we cannot get too comfortable with because we're not really sure what's going to happen when he comes home tonight. Rather, I think that the better metaphor is, 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 is how you might relate to Fire. Fire is a good thing, and when it is respected and used appropriately, fire is amazing. But don't get too comfortable with it. Don't become too casual with it, not because you don't know right what it will do, but because you do know what it will do if you just casually throw a match on a dry brush pile. The same is true for Yahweh. We are not to get too comfortable here, not because we don't know who he is, but because we do know who he is. He is the holy one. And maybe for some of us this morning, the confusion of this text prompts us to ask ourselves, do we know who we are dealing with this morning? Or have I grown too comfortable with, with this God? And for some this morning, we don't have a problem with God's judgment because we are so sure which side, which side God is on. He's, he's for the good guys. And that's me. That's Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. But have we grown too comfortable? Do you know who you have come to worship this morning? That would be a good question for those. In, in some way, have you prepared yourself for this hour? Or does God sort of fit into your schedule as sort of another accessory? Do we know who we are praying to this hour and throughout our weeks? Who we petition, who we read about in this book, who holds all things together in his hands. Take off your sandals for this place you are standing is holy. For some of us, that is a great question for us to ask at this point before we move further. Are we we getting too comfortable with this God? For others, though, we might be wondering... And and perhaps having more concern over the judgment and might be wondering who then has the right to judge in the first place. Because when we read those words, take off your sandals, you are on holy ground. What we are really reading is take off your sandals because you are not in charge. And for some, that's really where we struggle this morning because our hearts are wrestling with that. Judgment is a concern, but what my heart is really wrestling with is authority. Who has the right to judge anybody? We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to be the one who determines who can judge and whether judgment of any kind is just or okay. In other words, we want to be God. Or if we can't be God, we at least want to be seen on par with God. And so to come into his presence and to be told, you must take off your sandals. We have a problem with that. Because we don't like that distinction. We don't like being reminded that there is a creator and the creation. And that that relationship and that perspective must always be maintained. What the Bible is saying to everyone, whatever side you are on, whatever part of the creation you belong to, is whether you acknowledge it or not, this is where we all stand. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. No. We can fear God, not because we don't know who he is, but because we know exactly who he is. We know exactly who we are dealing with. And when we know who we are dealing with, we can actually begin to trust him. To trust his judgment even, if we don't fully understand it. And this gets to the second point, that we can trust his judgment. Trust or trusting someone or some something, right, is... Does not come when we completely understand everything about that person or thing. trust comes when someone or something has given us enough reason to deem them trustworthy, whether we understand them fully or not. A couple of examples for those that are married in this room or have gotten married. you know that it is impossible for you to to say, I will get married." But only until I fully understand and know who this person is. One, you'll never get married. You just spend the rest of your life trying to do that. And two, you actually can't fully know who that person is unless you get married. But we do it anyway. We get married with very little knowledge of the person we're getting married with at times. Um, And so it just proves the point that, that, that trusting, right? Like when we talk about trust, we... We don't live as, the, as people who must know everything about a certain circumstance or situation or person before we deem that person trustworthy. There is a faith acknowledgement going on there. Another example to use our, is, is just our technology, our smartphones. Uh, everyone has one, just about, and we all use them and we have all folded them into our mundaneness of life. Uh, for some, though, our phones are the first and last thing we see uh, before we go to bed at night. And when we wake up in the morning, they're there. And we just, we look at them uh, and love them and they go with us. But, you know, if you, if you read what a lot of uh, research is showing us, we, we really don't understand fully what this technology is doing to us and how it's shaping our lives, how it's shaping us, how it's shaping how we relate to others, and this isn't to, to you know, say we need to get rid of our phones. Maybe that's appropriate for some people. I'm just saying we don't fully understand what they are doing to us. We don't understand them, right? But it doesn't change or stop us from leaving the house with them. Does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, trust comes from when we deem something trustworthy. And it has proven itself uh, to be, you know, I don't know, fully understand what you're doing or what's going on, but I find you trustworthy and I'll give you my trust. Not from complete understanding. This is why context is king. We won't fully understand the conquest this morning or probably even for the rest of our lives. But that doesn't mean that we can't trust God, the one who delivers it. Because of the full story of scripture that he gives us, he proves himself to be trustworthy. That means we must hold the conquest in light of the full story of scripture to see uh, if this God truly is trustworthy or not. So let's begin as we look at what the conquest is and what it isn't. What is happening and why is it happening as we move further in the book of Joshua? The term that, that, we're, that we're looking at that is always under uh, discussion is this term called harem or the ban. And, and that is uh, the, the Hebrew term that, that that means this is the devotion to the Lord. Okay, It is utter destruction. Uh, dedicating something to the Lord because it belongs to the Lord in that way. In Joshua six seventeen to eighteen, which we'll probably read next week, uh, here's where this word is used. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord. That is that term, um, verse eighteen. But when, but you, um, or sorry, let me, let me read that. Let me slow down here for a second. Be devoted to the Lord for the destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Verse 18, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon you. In other words, the ban is divine judgment upon someone or something that as a consequence of sin and disobedience must be consumed or destroyed as an act of judgment. A couple of things about the ban that we need to keep in mind this morning and as we move forward. One, this is not normal warfare. So there's a lot of warfare in the Old Testament. This is not that type of warfare. This is holy war. This is, this is a different type of war. And most times whenever the ban, when we talk, when we read about it in Joshua, whatever is devoted to the ban is to be completely destroyed, not plundered or kept because why? It belongs to the Lord. That's why this isn't about Israel, and I'll say that several times this morning. It is about God and his holiness and his right to judge what is imperfect. This is why also in the coming chapters, Achan and his family, we will see, Israelites, will be destroyed for what? Taking from the city. What belonged to the Lord, they kept for themselves. This is not pillaging and plundering and making yourself rich and wealthy in the process. This This is something more serious. This is judgment. And so the reason for this is, as we said, this is about God and what belongs to him as the creator. This is not, it, not about Israel or anyone else. This is about his judgment for his reasons and his purposes. It is Yahweh war, if you want to call it that, which makes the ban unique. It isn't normal as, as warfare pertains, something else is going on here. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing that I want to keep in mind is what is always true of harem warfare is the destruction of life. Okay. So I don't want to sidestep that. Right. that that's the hard part here. Uh, while there will be the, the consuming of riches and property and all this stuff, um, the common denominator in all of this is life. That blood must be shed. And this signifies the seriousness of the offense between the creation and the Creator. And its aim is to tell us or teach us something about who we are, and more importantly, about who God is, the only one with the authority to take life. Many ask, were the Canaanites that bad? And I will um, spare you the list of things that we read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that we can make a good case to say, yeah, they're pretty bad. Um, child sacrifice. I have a problem with that, uh, among other things. Um, but, uh, you know, what w- we'll see is, is we are no better. That, 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 that what's unique about this is that sin, God has allowed sin, as we saw in Genesis 15, to sort of grow to its fullness before it is judged. Um, and one of the challenges for us in this, this discussion is that we live under the age of common grace. And what that term means and where it comes from is ever since the flood back in Noah, when God destroyed or attempted to destroy or not attempt he, he promised to destroy and judge the earth, but he spared it instead. He spared Noah and his family, which means he spared us and decided, you know, in his fuller plan of salvation to do things a different way. When Noah and his family got on that boat, common grace began. In the sense that from now on, the rain is going to fall on the just and the unjust alike. There will be some uh, who will not receive faith, right? who will not believe and receive the salvation of the Lord. But they will still experience the joys of a sunset. They will still experience the joys of, of the air that we breathe and, and, and the blessings that life brings. That's common grace. Just as much as those who do belong to God. Right? Common grace still exists. Right, There are those who believe in Jesus and there are those who don't. None of that changes the common grace we all experience in the sense that we experience God's creation and his joys in his life. What happens at time, what, what I would argue is happening here, is that sin becomes so ripe, so full, as God says in Genesis 15, that he, his judgment, for whatever reason, breaks through that common grace and acts immediately upon that thing. That is one of the things that is happening here, but also, I'd argue, is one of the reasons why this is hard for us. It's because, for the most part, we operate under common grace. We don't see these things every day. right? We don't don't see God doing this all the time, which brings me to my third and final uh, aspect of the ban, of the conquest that I want us to keep in mind, is that it is a one-time, unique thing. This is not a model for Israel moving forward, and it is not a model for Christians today. Let me say that again. It is not a model for Israel moving forward and is not a model for Christians today. Have Christians used this as, as a model? Absolutely. It's a large part where the conquests uh, were, were, were built around. But, but many other cults and, and, and you know, false churches, I would even argue, have used and justified their behavior because of this. But that's not what this is. It is a unique, one-time thing. We will never see this type of judgment executed upon any people group again in the Bible. It is a one-time thing. And this, again, doesn't make it easier. Doesn't make it untrue. But that context helps. God is using Israel as an agent of judgment upon the Canaanite people. But that, again, isn't because Israel is better. Most of the Old Testament is God bringing in other nations as agents of judgment upon Israel for their disobedience. This is about God. It's about his holiness. It's about his authority to judge. That's what is going on here. Here. The ban is a one-time thing. What Israel is to remember, or what I would say, what we are to remember is that they, us, we deserve this same judgment. But they just aren't getting it. We deserve this same judgment. We just don't get it we'll get to why in a second. But for Israel, it is rooted in that Deuteronomy 9 text. When I bring you into this land, do not think that it was because of your righteousness that I gave it to you. Do not think of yourself as better than these people. Because you're not. For you are a stubborn people. Which is why what is happening here in Joshua as well is not genocide. Or ethnic cleansing, as many claim that it might be. Genocide is often the wiping out of, other, of a nation. But the modern sense of that word, genocide, comes with this vicious self-interest, often based on myths of racial superiority. Like think of the Nazis and Arianism. Right? Think of the genocide in Rwanda in the 90s. All of that is tied to racial superiority, the conquest in Joshua is never once justified on ethnic grounds. In fact, to bring this back to our attention, to push against that concept for Israel and for us, the entire book begins with what? Chapter two: The Conversion of a Canaanite Rahab. Add to that the countercultural commands of how Israel was to care for the sojourner, the alien, the foreigner, the outsider in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And you have an overwhelming message of love and care for all peoples of the world. But there are times when sin reaches a point that it must be judged. And sin, all sin, our sin must be judged. But there is this unique time when God judges, judges it in a way that he hasn't before. And that's the conquest. And we are to read this, keeping in mind that we are no better. God in his grace has actually kept us, kept the evil that is actually in our hearts, the potential here, from reaching its full fullness. If you want to get down to it. We deserve what Canaan gets, but it is God's mercy that keeps us from it. When I begin to hold these things together. That the conquest is unique. It is a one-time event. It is divine judgment. It is not ethnic cleansing cleansing. And all of our sin deserves this. Not just the Canaanites. It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't make this untrue. But it helps. It helps me understand and begin to to move towards a God that I that I can trust because He is good and because He is merciful. And yet one thing we have not considered There's more to consider than just what I've said, of course. But one thing we have not considered is how this sits as part of the bigger story um, in relationship to the purpose of judgment. That that, that all of this is centered around his promises to bless the nations. And this gets to the final point. That because God is merciful and good, we can escape his judgment. All of this, guys, is housed in his covenantal promises to bless you and me that creates more questions. But the point of it is, is that God spends way more time throughout scripture demonstrating his patience, right? Giving more of his effort and time and energy and seeing his creation escape this judgment. We call this redemption. In redeeming all things, which is what he is doing for Israel here by making them agents of judgment, he is in effect saying to them, "This should be you. Receive my forgiveness." Walk with me, obey my statutes. The way that forgiveness was received in that day and age was through this worship, the system of worship. This is, how, this is how forgiveness was atoned for. This is how Israel then will be this blessing, blessing to the nations as they, as they sit there and as they, they live according to God's uh, to, to his rule. Offering for the nations, those who would come in and believe in this God, a way for their sins to be atoned for. Therefore, escaping judgment will look like Israel keeping Israel's worship. Keeping those practices pure. Not intermingling, uh, uh, not the intermingling of foreign practices which will bring blessing and rest to the land. Therefore, Israel, what, must not leave any inhabitants moving forward. They must drive them all out so that nothing will be in the land for the purpose of and so that nothing will compromise the purity of the worship that God has given them to worship him. This is why Israel must not marry outside the faith at this point in the covenant. But that does not a you can't marry other ethnicities. You can't marry people who practice other religions. This is why Israel must be careful about what they eat and don't eat. Because so much of this food that is, pro- is forbidden was used in all of this Canaanite worship. And, and God is a God, as we said before. He is not in the business of sharing his holiness with anybody. It all has to go. We will not intermingle worship practices here. We will not, we will not sort of have uh, the marketplace of ideas and sort of discuss this. God's holiness cannot sit in that. It all has to go. And, and that is what is in view here. That as Israel goes in and it takes the land, all of them got to be wiped out. Not because it necessarily is something in particular about that person. Although obviously practice of religion becomes so intermingled with the people that they are one in the same. Which should cause us some serious reflection as well. But the point here is that my holiness demands Purity. And the way that you're going to bring blessing to the world is, is, if, is if this system of worship sets up camp here and nothing impurifies it. Nothing changes it. Because that is who I am. I am the one true and holy God. That is what is what needs to be proclaimed here. So as you do that, and as you live in that way, and as the sojourners and the foreigners, as they come in, and as they experience Who this God is and what this life is like to believe in this God. They might have faith too. And be converted. And what? That is how the blessings are coming to the nation. Find atonement for their sin. But what will happen in the coming years. And generations for Israel as you know. Is they won't listen. They won't obey. In fact, even on the pages moving forward from Joshua, we'll get these refrains. They were still Canaanites in the land. Which is actually more interesting as you read about this topic. It wasn't the complete annihilation of the people group. Because there's still people in the land. But you see, that's the, this is the reason for it. This is the problem of it. And what ends up happening when they don't obey the Lord in this way. When they don't respect the creator and what his holiness demands. Is that they what? They compromise. The practices get intermingled. We start worshiping in the high places. Which is another way for worshiping Canaanite gods. And no longer then is Israel able to be a blessing to the nations. But does that keep God from keeping his promises? Of course, all this leads Paul to write in Romans for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is why when we recognize this and we see it in its fuller context, we deserve this. But we don't get it because the full story in which the conquest sits is not a story of, of all is lost or let's just try harder. Thank the Lord. <laughs> it's a story. Of how God will stay committed to the unfaithfulness at the expense of the, the unfaithfulness of his people at the expense of the faithful. How God will take the sword of judgment in which the commander of the army of the Lord is holding, and not turn its full wrath on us, not turn its full wrath on its creation, not turn its full wrath on the unfaithful, but what? Turn it on himself. On the faithful one, Jesus, the pure and faithful one. One, this is the gospel. The cross then doesn't make the conquest easier, but it does make God trustworthy because it says sin must still be judged. If we are going to be in relationship, I cannot lower my standard, but sin has made it impossible for you to meet my standard. So there must be another way. And there is there's one way and it is the cross. God says, either I wipe out everything, which is what the flood was, or I take the judgment upon myself. <clears throat> and the cross is where sin is fully judged. And I would add this, if we have a hard time understanding the tragedy and how horrible the cross is, then maybe let's look at how horrible the conquest is. You see that? If the conquest is bad and it is, How much worse are we to understand the cross as we see the faithful one, the son of God, hanging there for our sin and for our judgment. God turns the sword on himself, which is the wonderful news of the gospel, so that what you and so that I might escape judgment. So that Rahab might escape judgment. So that all who trust in Jesus for salvation might escape judgment. Judgment, God says, I love you this much. I will take it. I will remain faithful for the unfaithful. Will you believe me? That, friends, is the context in which the conquest sits. It doesn't make it untrue, but it helps because we really see God's mercy and his goodness to, the, to us. This is how we escape the judgment. So when we take the conquest and we hold it up to the cross... We can no longer say anymore that God is unfair. We can say we don't fully understand, but we cannot say that God is unfair because what's fair? That the unfaithful deserve judgment or that the faithful one receives that judgment. What's fair? You have to hold the two together. If we remove the cross, then God is not consistent with sin, and the conquest just seems arbitrary. But if we remove the conquest, then we underestimate the penalty for sin, right? Our sin is not that big of a deal, and the cross doesn't make sense. We must actually hold them together, and when we do, we see God's mercy for us. What the conquest is really about. Because of his mercy, we can escape his judgment. And guys, God loves to give his mercy. Hear that this morning. Wherever you sit, whatever you bring in here this morning, whatever you think you've done, whatever you think you could do that somehow would remove yourself outside of his grace, he loves to give his mercy and it is available to you in Christ. This is how his mercy allows us to fear his judgment Trust his judgment and escape his judgment. What am I walking away with? What am I taking with me concerning the conquest uh, on Monday morning? And I want to leave you with this one thing. When we hold the story, the bigger story together, we see this one thing. We see a lot of things, but there's one thing that when 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 we boil it all down, God owes me nothing. But I owe him everything. He owes me nothing. But I owe him everything. The conquest says, this is what I deserve. I am the unjust one. No different than the Canaanites. But the cross says, yep. But this is how much I love you. Look at it. This is how much I love you. And it's that blood, the blood of Jesus that I need, that you need. That blood through faith in what is what makes us just this morning. It is the only thing. So when we hold those two together, the conquest and the cross, we see um, that, that what, we, what we didn't get, what we should have gotten, but we see what, what Jesus got instead. And what kind of God does that? <laughs> right. That's the question that causes me. Now I've got more questions over here than I do about the conquest. What kind of God puts himself in the seat of judgment? One who loves to show his mercy. One who is good. One who is gracious. And what does this do then? This gives us, this is the power for us to what? Go be a blessing to the nations, as the new covenant has prescribed. To go be agents of mercy, agents of grace, agents of love and of kindness, representing both the hands and the feet of God as we speak in word about sin, about judgment. about grace as well and about mercy as we show that in our deeds and our actions as well as we serve and love other people because this type of gospel, this type of love and mercy and grace, it produces a humility in us that says God owes me nothing and I owe him everything. That will change your business. That will change your classroom. That will change your marriage. I I want to be friends with somebody who walks around with a disposition that says, look, God God owes me nothing, but I owe him everything. I deserve that judgment. I did not get it, but man, I I, I don't even fully understand that. It's because he loves you. It's grace, friends. All this is the part of the bigger picture. When you see that, when that mercy and that grace gets in, friends, that is where faith begins. And we begin a life of following Jesus. In fact, as Tim Keller writes, till it dawns on you that God owes you nothing and you owe him your entire life, (laughs) you have not begun to follow Christ. What I would argue for and what I'd hope you would agree with is what Fort Worth needs more than ever is a people who know that they have received mercy. That is what we can be for this, this city. This church can be a place be a people for Fort Worth who know that they have received mercy, which means they know they have received forgiveness and did not deserve it. That I am unjust before the Lord, but because of Jesus and his blood, I am made just. I'll close with this. I'm way over time. I went out and exercised on Thursday, and something... (laughs) Stranger almost in this text happened on Thursday evening. It started to rain. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if I should take shelter. I didn't know if I should bask in it. What It was just like this. I was getting all wet. And I didn't know what it was. Um, obviously, having this text in my mind and, and doing what I was doing, I just couldn't help but think. All right, Ryan, is the rain falling on the just or the unjust? All right. Yeah. Is the rain falling on the just or the unjust? Yes. Yes. This is what I want you to take with you. This is what the conquest and the cross do. Yes. The conquest says, yes, this is what you deserve. Your sin makes you unjust. But at the same time, yes, that's what the cross says. You are loved. This is how much you're loved. And this is the blood that makes you just. All right. Thanks be to God. The cross gets the final word every time. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you and we, we don 't fully understand why we 're here, why we um, are, are given this grace and this mercy and, and, and in many ways, that is just a challenge, but it is your goodness to us and may not, may not make us people who are prideful or self righteous but may that humble us because we know that we owe you everything, you owe us nothing. May that send us into our workspaces, our families, our places of influence with a bigger story, the one of the gospel that tells us, tells others how much they are truly loved, where mercy can be found, that is in the blood of Jesus. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.